Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We don't need a history lesson right now, John, particularly with a guest that we have now in all that he has lived in Lithuania. But needless to say, the speech, which I read every word of, was absolutely extraordinary in uh, translation. None of this has been lost in translation for Vigatis Yashutskis. He is the former European ambassador to <clears throat> Russia, but beyond that, has lived his Lithuania. And he joins us this morning knowing that it is a short two 223 miles across Lithuania and Vilnius to Kaliningrad. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us. Robert it's Kagan, my my, Robert Kagan, last night in the Washington Post, simply said the Baltic states are the most at risk by Mr. Putin's perception of his Russian empire, whatever that may be. How at risk this morning is Estonia, Latvia, and your Lithuania? Well, we are concerned, of course, because even being uh, members of NATO, the the mightiest and the largest alliance, military alliance in the world, uh, members of the EU, our history taught us we cannot afford ourselves to be complacent. And of course, when the outcome of the Cold War is being rejected, and uh, you know that that the, the borders in the 21st century are being rewritten brutally and with a force, there is no way to become complacent, and that's why we hope that one of the resolves NATO and United States administration will demonstrate by stationing permanent troops in the Baltic states. When we see. The moments of this weekend, the question has to be the application of NATO troops and indeed United States troops. Do you need to see a more active summoning of those troops to your Lithuania? Yes, we appreciate you know, support what United States has been I mean, already demonstrating recent visit of Secretary of Defense, Mr. Austin. However, you know, uh, Kremlin respects only U.S boots on the ground. I know that from our experience, and that's what we what we expect, uh, pray and request uh, for, for the U.S. Uh, to come to, to rescue and prevent any kind of entertainment Kremlin may consider. So is it force that ultimately is going to make a difference to Vladimir Putin? Forget about economic sanctions that he spent the past eight years trying to fortify his economy, uh, economy against Vigautis? Well, I think it will require a geostrategic stamina and Western resolve, especially European resolve, to recognize what's going on. What Putin said yesterday, um, I may sound uh, politically incorrect, is nothing new. He's been pursuing this narrative of assertion and aggressiveness since 2013. He plainly said that he does not consider Ukraine to be a, a normal or even a state. It's part of Russia. It's part of Russian nation. And, you know, rewriting brutally the borders with disrespect to basic rules is, is a shivering experience. And that's what we hope that it will require a political stamina. It will require troops on the ground, uh, talking, uh, diplomacy, but also sanctions as well. Well, and speaking of diplomacy, are, are the Minsk Accords now dead? 
Uh, I think that, that I mean, Putin said it, it's 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 over, and I I mean, you know, how <laughs> how would you expect that to be written? I think Minsk codes are uh, are gone. Uh, they've been shred by by Kremlin, and now the question is how the West will, will respond. I wish uh, that the West would respond in a strategic terms. Uh, that's how what Putin understands, and it will require sanctions, uh, most profound and severe, uh, maybe freezing them before the summit between uh, President Biden and, and Putin, and then uh, moving forward. That will require that will require uh, also a greater support uh, to Ukraine because it's all about, I mean, independence and sovereignty of free nation. And the time is to come back to, to the strategic decisions by the West to extend membership action plan for Ukraine and invite for the negotiation talks into the EU. That's how the European security architecture has to be built and maintained, alongside with talks to Putin on confidence-building measures, on arms controls, but it's only part of the much more complex puzzle uh, and the litmus test we are witnessing right. is the most profound in history. Ambassador Jeffrey Sachs in the Financial Times this weekend, of course, with all of his experience with Gorbachev and Yeltsin, Russian. Professor Sachs says, look, it's not appeasement, but there needs to be a diplomatic negotiation. Do you fear or can you imagine that as part of a NATO diplomacy and, frankly, German France and Russia diplomacy, that we would generate a strip of land from Russia across to Kaliningrad? Would that be a chip? that we would have to give up with land across your Lithuania? Uh, well, uh, I, I think, I'm, I'm sure that is not something what is being considered in Paris, Berlin, or Washington, D.C., in the White House. Uh, we, we trust, I mean, the iron cloud assurances and the security guarantees of NATO. Uh, George W. Bush, which I was um, uh, a party to host as ambassador of Lithuania to the United States at that time, he said in Vilnius, uh, anyone as of, as of now will make the enemy of Lithuania will be the enemy of United States. We trust those words and we, uh, we, we count on your support. We're looking to have you on the show with us this morning, sir. Thank you. Vigaros Oshuskas, the former EU ambassador to Russia. Let us move on here to a discussion with Leslie Falconio, Senior Fixed Income Strategist for UBS, uh, UBS Growth Wealth Management. We're thrilled she could join us in the blur of news this morning. Leslie, the short order is this international relations brings yield down. I believe I learned that's price up, yield down. Is this the ultimate buy the dip or you run with the fortune of seeing price up, yield down in fixed income? Well, I mean, I, I think this is obviously a short-term flight to safety, but I don't think that alters actually the long-term growth prospects that we're seeing, particularly for the U.S. economy. And if anything, we would be more in terms of you know, selling the rally right now, given our outlook that we anticipate, you know, a 3.8% real GDP, that the consumer is still strong. So you're going to have this flight to safety and sort of these pockets of vulnerability. And, you know, as we know, we have this kind of risk and we have this kind of short-term bouts of volatility. You know, investors have a tendency to focus on right. downside risk versus upside opportunity. Fold in here UBS economics. Did 50 basis, did 50 point, Rate uh, rate increase did that drift away this weekend? 
I think the probability is has become increasingly low. I mean, not just 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 week this weekend, but even you know before this weekend, listening to some of the Fed rhetoric. I mean, we don't think that they're going to start off at the fifty basis point rate hike. I mean, I think some of the Fed rhetoric last week actually showed that. I mean, it doesn't mean that they won't do fifty later on, but to start off with that might be a little bit too extreme. And look, I mean, they're still buying bonds. You know, they're still increasing their balance sheet. And I think they're going to wait to see exactly how the base case effects turn in terms of inflation the second half before they do such an aggressive move. Well, speaking of aggressive moves, obviously the West is reacting to what we saw from Vladimir Putin over the long weekend. We're now hearing from the UK's Boris Johnson that the UK will sanction five Russian banks as well as individuals. When we look at the potential implications for the fixed income market of this geopolitical crisis, Leslie, and specifically the energy complex, what's the read through into break evens, inflation expectations and therefore monetary policy ultimately? Well, you know, it's interesting because if you look at things like the five-year, five-year forward swap, it's like a 2.3%. Even if you look at the break-evens today, we're not seeing this big rise in inflation expectations. I think it's a component, but I don't think it's going to be a driver. And I don't think it's going to alter necessarily the Fed's path, which we do believe will be around five rate hikes by the end of the year. It'll probably be a bit gradual, 25, with the data that we know right now. But I don't think this is going to have a knee-jerk reaction where the Fed has to become even more hawkish because we're seeing rise in energy prices. All right. So there's obviously the break evens component, Leslie. There's also the real yields component. Do we reach positive territory? Will they stay negative? Well, I mean, listen, I think five year real yields are very negative. I mean, the 10 year we've had a correction with, we're down negative rate 50 right now. We probably can go to plus or minus 20, but that five year real yield has remained stubbornly negative. And even though nominal yields in the five year side had gotten almost to 2%, which by the way, we don't think is going to get that much higher. However, we do think those break even inflation expectations are going to fall from that 2.9 level that we see right now, probably closer to that five year, five year swap of about 2.3. So we are expecting real yields to rise. Whether or not they turn positive this year is a question mark, but they could be close to it. Leslie, thank you for being with us. What a busy morning for everybody. <clears throat> Leslie Falconio there of UBS Global Wealth Management. Joining us now to give perspective here, particularly for those listening in Europe, Emrita Sen joins us, founder, director of research at Energy Aspects. I must say she's just fabulous at the dynamics of supply and demand in energy. Emrita, my fault is I don't spend enough time talking about natural gas. What can Mr. Putin, Mr. Medvedev do to change the dialogue of natural gas in Europe? Well, I think natural gas, of course, you know, it's, it's been very uh, prominently featured in, in the media uh, last year, particularly because of Nord Stream 2. But I will say uh, Putin has come out even just a few hours ago and said that gas supplies will be uninterrupted. Uh, and I think that has been one of the big fears in the market, uh, whether because of either Western sanctions or because Russia um, decides to turn off both oil and gas supplies to Europe. Uh, but they have never done that before, including during the Cold War. So, again, I think Russia is not going to be the one uh, acting yeah. on that and using energy as a weapon. But, of course, we've seen the right. headlines with uh, Germany uh, halting the process, which, which, you know, which was one of the yeah. things we were expecting should the, should the tensions escalate. Well, you know, John emailed me this, uh, Sunday morning, Amrita, about 5 a.m., the Netherlands Natural Gas Code, TZT1 commodity. And the bottom line is it was cheap. And then it became expensive with a spike up here, and it's come down and been managed. Who's managing the price of natural gas in Europe right now? 
The reason natural gas prices have managed to come down in Europe uh, has actually been thanks to Asia, because Asia had bought a whole lot of LNG cargoes. Uh, if you remember, not this winter, the prior winter was very, very cold. They were caught short. So then as a result of them overbuying, and the weather was fairly mild, they had some excess, which they then managed to send over to Europe. That is what has helped gas prices come off. But fundamentally, I mean, we saw record high TTF prices which is the price you're referring to last year, those fundamentals haven't changed. Demand remains very, very high. And also supplies, regardless of what's going on geopolitically with Russia, Russian supplies into Europe have remained very low. Uh, and we weren't even expecting Nord Stream 2 to come online till November of this year anyway. So it is still a very tight market. And Rita, how did you interpret the language from Chancellor Schultz earlier? Was that a man putting things on ice or a man killing Git? <laughs> well, look, the West has to be seen to be doing something, right? And we've maintained our view that uh, there will not be sanctions on energy supplies, prompt energy supplies, whether it be for oil or for gas. Uh, Europe is just way too dependent. I mean, 35 percent of gas, uh, European gas comes from Russia, 38 and 39 percent of oil and diesel comes from uh, Russia. So uh, it's, it's just going to hurt the West a lot more, especially with crude close to $100 and gas still very, very high. Yes, it's off the record highs, but it's still high. So um, they need to be doing something, but it's going to be uh, around technology sanctions, potentially some banks, some individuals being sanctioned. And again, this was something where, um, yes, Nord Stream 2, it wasn't supposed to be coming online tomorrow, right? It is still further down the pipeline. It, it was something along the lines of future projects that could be affected. And Nord Stream 2 falls under that category. And Rita, we've got a decent understanding of where we are now. I'm trying to work out where we'll be by the time we get to the end of the year. Anna Edwards, our colleague, good friend here at Bloomberg, caught up with Russell Hardy, the chief executive officer at Vitol Group. And he said on the demand side, the 100 million barrel number is probably going to be exceeded this year. This was on crude. He went on to say demand is going to surge in the second half. And Rita, we understand how tight things are now. How tight do you think they'll be by the time we get to the end of 22? I think the, the couple of things I would say where we could get some extra supplies, Iran is, of course, one of them, uh, potential sanctions lifting in, in the coming weeks, and you could get more oil out in the second half of the year. U.S. producers, again, they're still being very disciplined, but potentially you could eke out a little bit more from them. But uh, Russell Hardy is exactly right. We've been talking about this uh, for months now, that there is a lot of pent-up demand. Demand is going to be rising, particularly in Asia. And we've talked about this on this show before. Asia just hasn't been able to come out, unlike the West over the last few uh, years because of COVID restrictions. So they are itching to fly and just get back to a normal life. So there is a lot of demand uh, that we are going to see, particularly in the summer. Uh, and the only way to then solve for this market, uh, because you're not going to get much incremental supplies, is going to be through high prices because demand growth has to moderate. How much higher? Is $100 oil and above $100 oil sustainable, Amrita? Um, well, if you think about back to 2008 uh, compared or if you in, do it on an inflation adjusted basis, oil prices need to be 30 percent higher now than in 2008 if you are to have the same impact on demand. So, yes, it could go uh, significantly higher before you start having an impact on demand. And Tom's going to like this because it talks about elasticities. Uh, people have actually saved up a lot more money and governments are handing out a lot more checks, which means income elasticity right now is a lot stronger than price elasticity. So even at $100 oil, even potentially at $120 oil, you don't see the slowdown that you've seen in the past. Uh, we've already, on our numbers, oil demand is already above 100 
100 million barrels per day. Uh, we will surpass 2019 levels uh, in the second half of this year, and we will be effectively growing by over 3 million barrels per day this year. When does supply and demand then come back into balance or more of a balance and start to change that equation? How long is it going to take? I think this is not a short-term thing, you know, $100 oil. I mean, we've been calling for $100 plus oil between 23 and 26 for a while. And that is precisely because this isn't a short-term phenomenon. Sure, you know, you're not going to get $100 oil necessarily like this year on a sustained basis, geopolitical risks aside. But this is ultimately about underinvestment. Uh, we've had years of underinvestment and now it's getting much, much worse due to all the narrative around energy transition. But demand simply isn't reacting. If anything, demand is actually rising quickly than anyone had expected. So therefore, there's a huge policy mismatch. Governments are coming out and talking about, you know, well, at the end to fossil fuel without actually doing anything to reduce demand. John, so I it's going to be here for a few years. You know, Amrita shows up, John, and I got ratios in my head. Amrita said that was brilliant on the responsivenesses given higher incomes. At what barrel size, Amrita said, do we actually click in demand angst? Is it $130 a barrel? I don't think we know the answer quite yet, simply because of the amount of income and savings we've got in the economy. But yes, I would say it's not lower than 120. It's probably around the number you talked about, maybe even slightly higher. Amrita Sen, thank you. Of Energy Aspects, thank you very much. Anthony Capriano joins us right now on your vacation plans. And I know you can't get a room anywhere. I know the drill. <laughs> of course, riding herd is Chief Executive Officer Marriott International. I want to span your two price points from $100 a night out to 500 and some nights. And these are, we don't need to spend a lot of time on it because Kaylee's got legitimate questions. There's Big Jet TV stopping the world on Friday with the storm in London. Mm -hmm. And the next day, he's from the roof of a Marriott courtyard at Heathrow. Tell us about how you run the airports Big Jet TV standing on. What's it like having the courtyard franchise at a lower price point? Well, Tom, first of all, thanks for having me. It's, it's one of the things that I love about our portfolio. I get questions all the time with 30 brands. Do you have too many brands? What's yeah. the right number of brands? The ability to offer that breadth of price points with 160 million loyalty members, we feel good about the ability to offer that right. breadth for every one of our customers. Let's go the other way to the Ritz-Carlton in Moscow, mm -hmm. which is 500 some a night, highest rated hotel uh, in the country. How do you see and perceive your business in Russia, given all that's going on. How are you going to handle the Ritz-Carlton in the coming weeks? Well, we've got about 30 hotels in Russia, two hotels in the Ukraine as we sit here today with a handful of deals in both countries in the pipeline. Uh, like every country we do business in, uh, we are about safety and security for our guests and our associates. Uh, as we've watched the recovery from the pandemic, that Recovery has largely been fueled by steady improvement in consumer and traveler confidence. Political instability, uh, as we've seen over the last 48 hours, certainly has the potential to rattle that confidence. So we're watching it closely.
Well, let's tie to those two stories together in terms of what we're seeing on the geopolitical front and what we're seeing with the consumer. Obviously, one of the concerns is that if you have repercussions on Russia, it's going to disrupt energy flows. That is going to be more inflationary. How does that translate into the discretionary spending of a U.S. consumer? Are they going to be spending as much on travel and leisure in the face of some of these inflationary pressures? Well, I thought it was interesting right before I came on, I heard your your prior speaker talk about competition for consumer discretionary spending and more and more folks that have been effectively locked down for the last two years thinking about spending on travel and tourism. Uh, We watch fuel prices, particularly for leisure travel in the U.S., but I can tell you even last summer, uh, despite some variability in fuel prices, we didn't see any meaningful dilution of the the velocity of, of leisure demand recovery. How far do we still have to go in that demand recovery, Tony? Well, in our fourth quarter earnings call, we talked about the fact that globally, revenue per available room was about 19% behind where we were fourth quarter uh, 2019. But that was a 40-point improvement from what we saw in the first quarter of last year. So we are seeing slow, steady improvement. Even in December of last year, uh, REVPAR, which is the, the acronym we use, was only down 11%. Now, we did see a bit of a hiccup from the Omicron variant, but we're already back to booking volumes ahead of where mm-hmm. we were before Omicron started. Financial question. Everybody I see, and of course, if it's good numbers, everybody puts at the top of the press release. And if it's not so good numbers, it goes down. Do your compare and contrast pre-pandemic right now. Which ratio matters so you measure back to 2019? Well, I think RevPAR matters. I think margins matter. Mm-hmm. And I think unit growth matters, which are among the metrics okay, go that to drive mar- our Just because of time, model. go to margins right now, because that's the heart and soul of it, isn't it? Well, we had to make some really tough decisions yes. through the pandemic. Uh, above property, we cut about 30% of our costs. We've seen a several hundred basis point improvement of margins at the property level. And we, as we see pricing power return, we think we can preserve the vast majority of those margins. How much of that on the cost side, Tony, is related to labor? What issues are you seeing there? Well, we are certainly, particularly in the markets where demand has recovered most quickly, we are seeing some wage pressure, as you might expect. But as you also might expect, that's where we're seeing pricing power uh, the strongest. And we think even with wage inflation, Mm -hmm. some of the efficiencies we've identified, we can preserve the vast majority of those margin improvements. The airlines now, I can report personally, and my travel agent, Kaylee Lines, is on this (laughs) 24-7 are stupid, crazy, busy, packed for the summer. Mm -hmm. What is this summer going to be like? I think it's going to be an all-time record. I think leisure demand has not slowed even a bit since the start of the recovery. And maybe the most notable thing to think about, Mm -hmm. so much of that recovery around the world has been driven by domestic travel. And as international borders start to open, you've got whole new segments of leisure travelers that are going to be traveling cross-border. I tried to get a Marriott slot in Paris and I had to book in Lyon just to get in there. I mean, that's a joke. Yeah. It wasn't that far away. He's encyclopedic. He's got six hotels in Leon. He's thinking about right now. It's going to be a boom summer. It like is. We've never it seen. absolutely is. Thank you, Tony. Thank you so much for coming by. It's a Thanks for having early me. visit, but far more importantly, Tony Capiano there on the distance from Marriott Courtyard to the Ritz-Carlton as well. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.